Welcome back, listeners. We're your hosts, Miranda Stan and Pooja Bhatti. Extremely excited for our upcoming panel featuring various podcasters and videographer science communicators from across Canada. In the weeks leading up to the panel, we will be conducting short interviews with each of the panelists to hear a little about what they do and what they're most looking forward to in our upcoming event. This week, we talked to Nicole Doucette, who was a co-host on the Discovery to Recovery Geology podcast and is currently working as a software technical writer. So, Nicole, thank you so much for taking part in our panel and being a part of our podcast. Tell you a little bit about what Science Networkers is, because I just DM'd you on Twitter and was like, hey, can you, can you be part of my event? Um, so, yeah, so... Uh, so yeah, so basically Science Networkers, it was originally not Science Networkers, it was me and Miranda uh, wanting to create a panel that helped people understand how certain people in Canadian science communication found their jobs, because we realized that there aren't a lot of career resources for those who want to pursue science communication and we wanted to try to offer something. So we came up with a panel which took place at the end of August. And in the process of promoting that panel, it suddenly was getting a lot of attention. And we realized that we may actually be filling a gap that currently exists in the SciComm space. And so we decided, why don't we try to see where we can go with this? Why don't we try to take place, take part of more projects and create career resources and networking opportunities for either people that want to pursue science communication that don't know what science communication is and it's like what is this field or those who are already in the community and want to meet other science communicators so that's how science networkers came to be and in our last panel we realized that a lot of people had questions about podcasting and videography and the whole digital media space especially now in covid a lot of people are kind of turning towards these different mediums to get their work out there so for this panel taking place in november we decided to make it like a digital media themed and invited panelists to work in that space awesome. so yeah, so we're really excited that you're going to be taking part. And you and I have actually worked together in the past through Science Slam Canada, yes. uh, which is really fun. So we definitely miss you there. Uh, um, yeah, I know. It was a lot of fun. But, um, but you've been up to some really great things since. So we, so this is just going to be like a really casual conversation just about like what you do and like what you hope that people will get out of this event and about science communication in general. So it'll be fun. We're also still trying to figure this podcast thing out. So. <laughs> I mean, so am I. <laughs> so I get it. <laughs> but so you were part of, uh, so we'd love to first hear about your work with uh, Discovery to Recovery um, and what you currently do as a software technical writer. So we'd love to hear a bit about both. Yeah, sure. So um my background is in mineral engineering and mining. So I basically have been in geoscience since I graduated, but obviously I didn't stick in engineering. I moved into science journalism, science communication, and technical writing, I think about a year or two after I graduated. 
Um, and so the Discovery to Recovery series came about, I was working for a company called Sequin at the time, who do 3D geological modeling. And I had actually produced a podcast series. It was my first series ever. And basically, I had just wanted to learn how to podcast. So I was like, okay, maybe the easiest way to do it is to just make a podcast series. And I had done one called Dino Mine, And it was basically about the experiences of different communities who worked in mining. So um, I kind of ran out of free time, you know, especially because I was doing a lot of stuff like Science Slam Canada volunteering and all of that. So there's only two episodes, but the first one was about the experiences of women in mining. And the second was about the experiences of uh, queer people in mining. And the person um, at the Society of Economic Geologists, Anne, who was looking to do a podcast series, um, she had seen or heard some of my previous work, and I had actually interviewed her daughter for the stu- a student competition, like an on-camera uh, science communication competition that we held at Sequin. So I met her that way, and basically we just linked up for coffee and talked about this series. She said that you know the Society of Economic Geologists wanted to do this geoscience podcast series for geologists and also people within geoscience, and um, we basically made a partnership, and that's how that started. Oh wow, that's really cool. So that is so that was the Discovery to Recovery podcast. And what about what you currently do as a software? So you kind of changed, Pat. So do you still work on that, or are you now just a full time technical writer? Yeah, so the um, podcast series was a limited release. It was 14 episodes, which have all been done now. Um, and yeah, I, I shifted gears a little bit. I kind of go back and forth between software technical writing and science communication. Um, I think if when you're within the science writing space, some people prefer you know the journalism side or <clears throat> the media side or the documentation side. I, I kind of just go wherever... I enjoy. I mean, there's benefits to both. And I'm working on um, an upcoming podcast project actually with Jesse and Lucas, who are also on the panel. (laughs) And yeah, and that'll be coming out. uh, I don't know exactly when, but hopefully in the next year or so. Um, So yeah, I'm kind of working as a software writer right now, which is pretty adjacent, but different to science communication. Um, but I still get to do a lot of what I really love and enjoy, but just as more of like a side passion project. Totally. That's really interesting. Um, I have a few friends that are also engineers and then myself as well as kind of a fake engineer. Um, a fake engineer? (laughs) Yeah. What does that mean? (laughs) I have my bachelor's in cell biology, but my master's is in chemical engineering. So okay. I um, am by all means an engineer, just never got the iron ring. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> um, but I know a lot of people have some sort of inner conflict when they step away from a hard academic field like that and pursue something that is adjacent to science, but still very important. And how did you find that transition for yourself? You know, it was difficult. I think it was actually more difficult for me because I had always wanted to be um, a science journalist when I was younger. Like my dream was to write for National Geographic. 
But, um, you know, being like 18 and not really knowing anything about the world or careers or even what engineering was or what journalism was, um, my parents, you know, really persuaded me to pursue a career in engineering just because there wasn't a lot of job opportunities in journalism at the time, which is, you know, still true. Um, the thing was, because I enjoyed writing so much, I kept it up throughout university. I wrote for quite a few newspapers. I submitted um, creative nonfiction essays to books and did a lot of technical writing and regulatory editing for a lot of the internships I had, even when I was in engineering. And I think the thing I kept hearing over and over again was, um, you know, I would be working with engineers and they're like, oh, we're so glad we have you here because a lot of engineers hate English or they hate writing or they just don't want to focus on it. Like they should be able to focus on the analytics or whatever it is that they're designing or building. And then they should have a person there who can do that translation for them. Um, So, you know, I kept hearing that over and over again. And I actually think having an engineering degree opened a lot of doors for me. Um, I'm not sure if some of the roles that I got, I would have been able to get with a journalism background. I think the engineering um, degree opened a lot of doors, especially when I would submit my resumes. They would say, oh, engineering degree with like writing extracurriculars. I think that's going to be a great fit for what we need. Um, So the actual transition after university wasn't too bad. I think it was pretty, pretty natural. But I think just that initial step of deciding to pursue engineering instead of following something I was more passionate about was was the one thing I kind of regret. But you know, I think this is kind of a really great example of the advantages of being because you're essentially someone that's sort of interdisciplinary, like, you know, you you tried your hat at a few things, and you have quite a vast background. And I know it's something that Miranda and I talk about a lot, and was even a little bit talked about at the last panel, because, you know, sometimes for me, I have a neuroscience physiology and an HR background, (laughs) which is quite a cocktail. And Sometimes I run into the problem of like, well, you're not physiology enough, you're not neuroscience enough, you're not HR enough. But, you know, I think you're a really great example of, you know, if you have these different backgrounds, or if you, you know, whether it's through education, or just through passion that, you know, it can really lead you to places, and it really helps you think in different ways. Yeah, I agree. And I think the you know, one of the greatest benefits of having a background in science or engineering is that it gives you those critical thinking skills. I feel that the way they taught me how to think in engineering has been incredibly beneficial for writing and multitasking and, you know, just making sense of a lot of the experts um, that I speak to and the research they're trying to explain to me. So that was definitely, I think, the greatest thing I took away from my engineering degree. Yeah, no, I agree with both of you. Um, Our last panel featured quite a diverse background from someone who was an environmental consultant and transitioned into essentially adult programming at Telespark. And then a neuroscience PhD, also from UBC, who now works in public policy. And I think it's an important story to tell. Like even in my own career, I work in a bit of business development and a bit of grant development that scientists are trained to do a lot more than take measurements in a lab and can contribute to different areas of government, society, even the arts in creative ways. And that it's your science degree that kind of gives you that different perspective on the world. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, the thing is, too, is like, if you're not 100% sure where you want your career to go, or um, if you want to switch, like you can always try something new, and then you can always just leave 
and go back to a different, you know, field or industry or job. Um, you know, it's never too late to start over again, which I have to keep reminding myself. <laughs> oh, same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, this this is my only kind of connection with sciences currently. But yeah, that was pretty much me trying to pursue my HR HR diploma. I'm like, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, so I get that. But wow, so that's really exciting. So something that we love to hear from our panelists is why do you think science communication is so important these days? Oh man, loaded question. I mean, I feel like you can kind of see the lack of science communication with what's happening right now with COVID and America, right? Um, there's been a lot of misinformation that's being spread, especially from leaders at the top, and that has led to some pretty devastating results for the entire population of America, right, with um, a lot of people dying, getting really sick from COVID, and, you know, the right measures aren't being put in place um, by the government. So I think, you know, science is so important for so many different things. I mean, there's a health side of it, obviously, which impacts people directly through their health. But then from the geoscience side of things, which is what my background is in, um, you know, right now, it's the um, healthcare workers on the front line. But as we start facing some of the and we already are, um, some of the impacts of climate change, it's all of our geoscientists on the front lines. And it's really up to you know, them and to people within the communication space to share how we need to make changes and why we need to make changes and to motivate people to actually, um, you know, change what they're doing in their daily life, but also um, what we're doing as a, as a whole society. Um, so I really see science communication as probably one of the most important pieces that we have because, you know, you can create and science and, and you can conduct research, but if no one understands why it's important or how they can apply it or the significance of it, then it, it doesn't really have a lot of meaning. And we really need to get people interested in understanding some of these scientific findings that we have, right, to, to make a big impact in what's going to happen in the next few decades. It's like very overwhelming to think about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, we filmed a few interviews tonight and I find everyone's just brought up these very deep life issues that my brain is like, whoa, that's deep, like the ocean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I never, you know, like it's been so horrible for healthcare workers and for um, people who are doing deliveries mm -hmm. and working in grocery stores for this, just this pandemic. And you just imagine how much, how much worse things are going to be for climate change. And the fact that, yeah, like it's all of the geoscientists, all the people I work with my community that will all be coming up with solutions for this kind of stuff and trying to communicate what's happening. So it was like a very horrifying realization for me at one point. I think I was actually recording a podcasting interview and, and that came up and I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Like, you know, it's going to be the geoscientists next. So yeah. Got some time. And to I feel prepare. especially an issue like climate change, which is in the background and always been there for quite some time. And there's almost, it's kind of what you're seeing now with COVID. There's a certain, maybe people have hit their saturation with COVID news and advice, and there's kind of an ignorance to it now, but that same ignorance with climate change 
is not going to be possible for much longer. And even knowing through my work and some of the grant programs we have coming up, it is very pertinent and an issue that needs to be addressed in the next five to 10 years. Um, and it's going to be the exact same type of messaging and trying to get an even more difficult buy-in on people to change habits when the economy might not be in the best format for them to do so. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know it's a lot to think about, but you know, we have to start making changes. Mm-hmm. Pooja, are you still with us? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was like, I was like thinking and I'm like, oh boy. We're all depressed now. Yeah. Uh, you guys are talking. I'm in Alberta. No. So climate change is almost like a bad word out here. Oh, oh my God. I used to live in Calgary. Yeah. So yeah, I, I feel, I feel you on that one. No, but it's so, cause you guys are absolutely right. And it's so frightening to think also just as science communicators that it's, it's not only your duty, but it's a huge responsibility that we're the ones that have to get this message out. And are people going to listen? Cause many people haven't been, you know, you can, I, I still remember being in elementary school and what's his name? Al Gore. Like, it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watching yeah, that watch- big movie, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. That movie showed in every single one of my classes. And yeah. I still remember his whole frog and hot water analogy of you know if you if you if the water's cold and you suddenly make it hot then he's gonna jump out but if you just slowly heat it up he's not gonna notice until it's too late and that really stuck with me but it didn't stick with a lot of my peers and you know I think nowadays uh people have you know especially like with the climate marches and with even even in Canada, I know a lot of people pay attention to uh, politics in the U.S., but Canada has has its own political situation going on and climate change. That that's what it's nice to see that that's what people are starting to care about and people are starting to wake up. But there is still such a responsibility on science communicators, and it's really scary to think because it's it's a huge burden almost. Yeah, hundred percent. But I mean, we have no choice, right? We'll have to. We'll just have to get on with it, really. Like, <laughs> it's going to happen regardless. So, just got to steal ourselves and face it, I guess. What do you think? So, Miranda had asked this in the, in the past interview, and I thought it was a really interesting question. So, I'm going to steal it and ask him <laughs> this one. What are your thoughts about TikTok as a form of science communication? Do you think that maybe TikTok influencers can get people to? care about climate change do you think it's effective um I mean it's interesting you're asking me that question because I actually don't have any social media except for Twitter which I use for work um I've never actually been on TikTok before uh but I have seen obviously the videos um I think like I've actually been was it I attended some panels or I read some stories about people who are using social media for science communication and I think like one of the most famous ones is um science sam on instagram right and she created quite a movement is it was it around biology Mm -hmm. i think um i think you know if you have tools at your disposal that can be used and that people are looking at and especially the younger generation is definitely using tiktok to get some of their information in their news and to connect with people i say like yeah you should definitely try to use it um communicate in the way that people want to be communicated to 
Um, not everyone likes, you know, reading long form content or newspapers or even listening to podcasts or watching videos. So if there's a lot of people consuming content via social media and especially TikTok, I feel like that should be leveraged. Um, and yeah, why not? Right. I, I just don't see why you wouldn't. I'd be, I'd be curious to know, like, has anyone said, no, you shouldn't use TikTok? Our last panelist did. <laughs> the reason why. Interesting. The reason, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. The reason why this question came up is it was um, one of my mentors in the field is Jay Ingram. And I was having coffee with him last Saturday. And he had to tell me how to use TikTok. And then was like, why aren't you using this for SciComm? And I'm like, this is embarrassing because you're like 30 years my senior. <laughs> More than. Not going to age him <laughs> out, but... Um, and then I was like, that's interesting because it is such a quintessential platform for Gen Z. Um, and I personally just loathe it, but that's where they're all choosing to interact the same way our generation arguably did on Instagram. Um, so it's like mm -hmm. maybe embracing those kind of things instead of mocking the younger generation for using them might be a more effective way to communicate politics, science, policy, whatever we need to get across. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to change behavior already. And I think asking people to change how they're consuming news or information is pretty difficult. Like if you're communicating science, you're already asking people to, you know, learn something new and potentially change the behavior. So to kind of make that happen twice over, I think just puts a lot of barriers in the way of science communication, which you don't necessarily need. Like if, if they're consuming information on TikTok, then yeah, like provide it there, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I, I guess at the end of the day, like you can't make people come to you if you have a message to send, you have to go to them. And yeah. If that's yeah. where people are, then, you know, download that app, get some background music and. Mm -hmm. I, I was, um, I went to a couple summers ago, um, Concordia University does a two week intensive science journalism program called Projected mm -hmm. Futures. And that was my, so that was my first time like attending any sort of journalism school, but it was really amazing. I think they're actually doing it again this summer. So for anyone listening, um, if you're interested, you could uh, apply and sign up to do it. Um, but in one of the lectures, he spoke about the different type of audiences that you have in communicating science. And I think he said the biggest one was most people are casually disinterested in science. So they don't really go out seeking, you know, to read like the science section of the newspaper or just like look up, um, you know, peer-reviewed scientific journals for fun. Uh, most people just don't really care unless it's related to their health. So there is a barrier there already in just getting people to read and consume that science information. So again, I think like if you can reduce the barriers and provide information in the way that people are consuming, that can go a long way. Totally. And everybody learns differently as well. Like, I, I mean, I have a science degree and I have to say I did not enjoy reading the, oh, people are going to hate me for this, but like reading the journals. <laughs> I did not enjoy that. It was so many words and letters. See, this is this is why I pursued HR. It's simple business <laughs> language. But but like I loved watching videos about it and I loved seeing animations and having someone explain the concept or explain the experiment to me. So, you know, it's I mean, I was pursuing science and I also had a hard time reading those papers and reading that information. So I guess for somebody that doesn't want to pursue science, but needs to be aware of the information, having kind of those different mediums and being a bit more creative about it, I suppose is the way to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mentioned this on the last podcast, but it's kind of a testament to how we communicate things in general. Um, like they scored different papers and how they were written language wise. And a scientific paper is scored anywhere from a 40 to 50, whereas normal adult conversation happens at a negative 40.1. So um, even like an international newspaper is considered to be baseline or zero. And that would be something like the guardian. And if you consider what even undergrads are learning, it makes science pretty unaccessible to a large portion of the population. If it's not brought down to someone's level. Yeah. Yeah. So part of what we do at science networkers is, you know, we're trying to make, not science, but also just the field of SciComm more accessible, allowing people to kind of understand that this is a field in science, you know, it exists and it's a growing field and there's a lot of ways to be creative with it. So what do you hope that attendees will get out of this event? Um, I mean, like, first of all, I think it's awesome what you guys are doing. I wish there had been an organization doing panels um, like this when I was trying to figure out what I could do with the skill set that I had and the passions that I had. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, what I hope for attendees is like the same thing I hope for myself. Um, you guys have a completely stellar lineup for the panel. And like I said, I, you know, have worked with Jesse and Lucas before. They're absolutely amazing. Um, every time I work with them, I learn new things. And, you know, the way that I have always upskilled in my career is just working with people who are better and smarter than me, who could teach me things. And so, you know, I hope for everyone who's attending the panel that they get a lot of great tips and tricks, especially if they're, you know, looking to start their own podcast with minimal resources. And um, yeah, I just, I hope everyone gets to learn new stuff. I mean, that's what I'm hoping for for myself too. The whole thing about working with people smarter and better than you. Uh, that's why I work with Miranda. <laughs> yeah. you way way smarter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was going to say, speaking of learning new things, where can people find your podcast and SciComm, Nicole, um, be it your two episode hobby project or some of the more professional works you've done? <laughs> yeah, so um, Discovery to Recovery is available on, I think, all of the major podcasting platforms. So Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, that kind of thing. It is geared towards geologists and geoscientists. Um it's not necessarily for the general public. So if you don't have a background in geoscience, it might um, be a little, there's, there's a lot of geology terms is what I'll say. I'm not a geologist either. So sometimes they just go over my head. And um, the Dynomine podcast series, um, it's just at soundcloud.com slash Dynomine. And other than that, I mean, I have a LinkedIn page, which has most of my work. And obviously people can just reach out to me if they want to chat about anything, um, if they want any podcasting tips, anything like that. I'm always happy to do a virtual coffee. We are obviously very pro networking. Um, so we will definitely <laughs> encourage people to take you up on a virtual coffee. Yeah, I mean, that's how I got most of my skills was just reaching out to people on LinkedIn and being like, hey, can I like chat to you about XYZ? Or, you know, what was your experience on this? Could you provide some advice? And it's, yeah, it's been amazing. I love mentorship. That is one of the most valuable things I think we can do in the science communication space. 
Yeah, that's actually, it's really great to hear that you have experience of just reaching out to people on LinkedIn, because that was a question and a topic of discussion that came up a lot in our panel. It's, you know, there is someone in the SciComm community I want to talk to, but do I just message them on LinkedIn? Yeah, How do I do you that? do. So, yeah, right? Like, you just say, hey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never had anyone say no. Um you know, like as long as I don't know, like how isn't it flattering when someone reaches out to you and they're like, oh, like, I love your work. Can we can I please speak to you? Like, of course, you're probably going to say yes, unless something else is going on in the background. But um, of course, I, I think most people want to share and like communicators are naturally people who love to share things anyways. So I think there's a pretty good shot if you reach out to someone, they will respond and say yes. And they love to talk about themselves. Everybody likes to talk about Everyone themselves. Everyone loves to talk about themselves. Whoever says, oh, I don't like to talk about myself. You're lying. <laughs> you love to. <laughs> but no, that's very true. That is very true that, you know, it's, it's a very nerve wracking. But when you really put it in that perspective of if you were reached out by somebody, wouldn't you be like, oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, Someone think I'm cool. <laughs> like, yeah. Like this is my this is my first panel. And I was 100% flattered. I was like, wow, have I made it now? Like. Is that it? Is that the peak of my career? Like I'm on a panel. That's it. I can retire. I always tell people, you know, you've made it in life when you've gone from attendee to panelist. So yeah, well, that's wow. I yeah, I'm gonna have to like, fan myself. I'm blushing so hard. <laughs> We're so excited to have you. And for me personally, it's so nice to I was I was like, I don't know. I don't know if we remember each other. It's of been a couple years. Of course I remember years. you. Oh my <laughs> gosh. We we were working for Science Slam together for like a year. Of course oh, I would. Oh my goodness. You. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we do miss you. So you should, you should, you know, shameless plug, you should come to our Grand Slam. But, um, but yeah, it's, um, no, like it's so, it's exciting to work together again. And it's really nice to see how like in such a short span of time, how everybody in the SciComm space or just in general has really evolved and has been trying new things. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about SciComm is that you know, whether you're someone that does it professionally, like most of the panelists, or if you're someone like me, that's just kind of trying this out and is, you know, it's, there's a space for everybody. And I think that's something that's really cool. And that's going to be represented well yeah. on the panel in November. Yeah. And I mean, everyone starts off, like if you are a scientist going into science communication, you all start at the same sort of base level. And like, you know, like, I don't know, just like a few, was it three or four years ago? Like, you know, I had, I had no idea what I was doing and I had a company that took a chance on me and that let me do podcasting and build my skills. And, you know, sometimes that's all you need is just someone who'll take a chance on you. Yeah. Coming from both working in HR and now working, I don't even know what I do guys, but anyways, I'm like Barney Stinson. <laughs> I show up and they pay me, but um, I think it, <laughs> it all comes down to that first break and kind of holding out for it. And it's amazing how accepting the SciComm community is. Uh, there's no bias of background or because um, I know SciCommers that have fine arts degrees. Um, so it's almost really curiosity driven and passion driven. And I think that's what's so great about the community. There's really a space for anyone to carve out something beautiful if they want to. Yes. And and just like, yeah, on the networking thing too and how small the community is, like I got involved with Science Slam uh, Vancouver when I had first moved to Vancouver because I wanted to be in that space. And of course, I met Pooja there. I met Alan there. And then Lucas, who's one of the panelists, um, 
you know, was one of the judges at the Science Slam event. And that was how I met him. And then we started working on a podcast together, which is how I got introduced to Jesse as well. So um, I think I just think like getting involved in the space, uh, you know, if you can and just attending events or even volunteering, it goes a really long way because once you start meeting people, like you'll just keep meeting more and more people. Um, and it, it's great. It's a great community to be in. And you know, if you're in Vancouver, a really great tip is to talk to someone named Alan Shapiro. Because <laughs> he literally knows everyone. I was going to say, we're going to have to start like getting some sort of payment from him for the amount of times we name drop Alan Shapiro. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, like, like he's the reason why we kind of even did the first panel in the first place. He's the one that sort of planted the idea of like, you know, this might be a cool thing. You're in science and in HR. And then now, yeah. <laughs> but, but no, but yeah, he knows everybody, I, especially in Vancouver. Yeah. Reach I, out to him on LinkedIn. If you, uh, <laughs> I feel like college co-eds are going to make a drinking game of our podcast. And every time you hear Alan Shapiro, you finish. <laughs> I mean, we almost got through the whole interview without mentioning his name. I did bring it up, so I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but but no, he's great. And he actually introduced me to Jesse and Lucas, who I'm really excited to talk to as well. Um, yeah, and have they're great. Panel. Yeah. Awesome. I think, I don't know, Miranda, did you have anything else to ask? Or No, I think that's a wrap. Sweet. And that wraps up today's interview. Be sure to tweet us at SciNetworkers to let us know what questions you'd like us to ask Nicole or any of our other panelists during the event. The panel is on November 8th at 1 p.m. Pacific. And if you haven't registered, you can find the event on our social media. See you in the next episode. <laughs>